Discover over 100 episodes of Bartholomew Town on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. This is the Bartholomew Town Podcast. Well, but are you the ultimate voice here? Um, legally, yes. However, I think um, my style has always been, and my record shows that, of working very collaboratively. So this notion out there that you were walloped by the news that Providence schools and other schools in the state were having problems after you took the job, that you're having buyer's remorse, that's utter nonsense. It is nonsense. I, I did know. What I did not realize is how bad it was. Welcome in to another edition of the Bartholomew Town Podcast. I'm your host, Bill Bartholomew. On today's episode, I sit down with Rhode Island Education Commissioner Angelica Infante Green. And unless you've been living under a rock here in Rhode Island for just about the past year, you know quite well that education has been at the forefront of just about every serious discussion when it comes to the status quo here in Rhode Island and certainly moving forward into the future. And no greater example of this than the Providence Public Schools, which the state of Rhode Island moving to and and likely by the time you're hearing this podcast have formally taken over. And at the forefront of that charge is new Education Commissioner and Helica Infante Green. Not brand new. It's been a few months now on the job and a jam-packed, heavy few months here for the commissioner. Um, On this episode, taking a deep dive into the commissioner's backstory and where she came from, her origin, her time in New York, and how that shaped her decision-making process, and also her perspective on Rhode Island as a whole. Fascinating stuff here and important stuff to keep in mind as the commissioner becomes essentially the leading voice In the Providence Public Schools, the remake, the rebuild, and through that, the development of a template that can be applied statewide. So coming up in a matter of moments, my one-on-one conversation with Rhode Island Education Commissioner Angelica Infante-Green. All right, folks, we are well past back to school, Labor Day weekend, that whole deal here in southern New England. Breaking out the sweatshirts, you know the drill. Now, there's still plenty of time for some summer activities, don't get me wrong. But if you're like me, you're probably starting to think about, maybe even get excited about autumn. And when I think about autumn, one of the things that jumps out is the Jack-O-Lantern Spectacular presented by Citizens Bank. And it's back this year, October 3rd through November 3rd at Roger Williams Park Zoo. Now, what can you expect from this year's Jack-O-Lantern Spectacular? This year, guests will travel through a seasonal wonderland and celebrate the joys of New England. Visitors will feast their senses on autumn's beauty, winter swirling snow, spring's first blossoms, and summer's ocean breezes. Summer, where we are right now, you better get out there and enjoy it. A few weeks left, because then right after it, it's autumn. And when I think of autumn, what do I think of? The Jack-O-Lantern Spectacular. Come check out thousands of intricately carved pumpkins, all displayed along the zoo's beautiful wetlands trail, complete with music and special effects. It's the 2019 Jack-O-Lantern Spectacular, presented by Citizens Bank. October 3rd through November 3rd, at Roger Williams Park Zoo in Providence. And you can support Bartholomew Town by subscribing on your preferred podcast app. And while you're at it, leave us a rating and review. Okay, without further ado, my conversation with Rhode Island's Education Commissioner, Angelica Infante-Green. All right, we are here with recently, uh, well, I guess it's now been a few months, so it's not really that recent anymore, but the Education Commissioner of Rhode Island, Angelica Infante-Green, thank you so much for your time this morning. Really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. All right. So let's get right into your backstory um, coming from New York and kind of your whole journey through education. What 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 brought you to the point where 
you know, you ended up working in an administrative capacity and then obviously in an executive capacity. Sure. So I am the daughter of two immigrants from the Dominican Republic, and I really do feel that education saved my life. Like, I grew up in a community that um, was diverse, um, and many of the kids that I grew up with ended up being incarcerated or not, you know, the path that their parents expected. So I really felt that I was able to go to better schools than they were, and it changed my life. So for me, education is more than just education. It's really life-changing, transformational for kids in poverty, really, or immigrant kids, or just any kid in general. Um, So that's where I am. I went to school. I was not going to become a teacher, even though I tutored my whole time in high school and college. Um, I joined Teach for America to do it for two years, and 26 years later, here I am. Um, But what it was for me was a mission. So I started working in the South Bronx, which was considered a very tough area at the time. And I saw all sorts of things. But what I did see was that the kids are kids wherever you go. Kids are kids. They enjoy the same games, have the same dreams, all of that. Um, And our job as educators is to provide that pathway and make sure that they get um, the right foundation so that they can achieve their dreams. Then I went up the ranks and um, I ended up going to the central office working with um, Joel Klein in those big reform years in New York City. But I represented... um, English language learners, which were students that were um, kind of an afterthought in everything that happened. Um, And we brought them to the forefront and made sure that those kids were in every conversation that was taking place and designs of schools. So we had that opportunity. That's what years are we talking about here? I guess the reform period. Mm, My gosh, there were there were quite a few of the Bloomberg years. Right. Um, Wow. 2004, five, yeah. around that time. Um, and then I was frustrated with some state regulations. And um, John King approached me about taking a job at the state education department. It took me a whole year to actually accept the job because I really wanted to stay close to the ground and do the work. But I also realized that there were some things that I couldn't change close to the ground. So I took this job uh, at the state level and I worked with the community to change regulations, make sure that the kids were able to get credits, were on a good pathway. And then after that, I moved up and started um, overseeing um, not just English language learners, but special education, assessment, curriculum, accountability, you name it. Um, And that was an exciting time because we had an opportunity to make change and bring some innovation into the state. Um, Because the state was always thought of as this place that only did compliance. And we shifted that from compliance to support. So it was a very different way of doing business. Fascinating. So you embrace the idea of a challenge at Mm -hmm. at, at many levels, I guess. My entire life. That, yeah. that's, that's the work I like to do, right? Mm-hmm. Because mm-hmm. that's where you have the most impact. Absolutely. And so you got a call or an email or you saw a position mm-hmm. posted in Rhode Island here. The uh, Just, a, what, three and, three and a half, depending on which mode of transportation hours, north of New York City here. 
And and were you based in Albany when you were doing no. the state where you so you were actually still in the city? I was still in the city. Yes. Mm-hmm. So now the opportunity comes in Rhode Island and you take it. And boom, here we are today. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's a little more than that. So about of seven years ago, um, the Council of Great City Schools invited me. They, what, what they do is that they bring people from different states that have expertise in certain areas to come and evaluate. So um, Providence asked um, the Council of Great City Schools to come look at their multilingual learners. I was part of a team that came. And I have to tell you, I was heartbroken when I came. I mean, heartbroken. And one of the things that um, I like to do when I go on visits, it's also visit all the classrooms, right? Not just the classrooms with the population that we're focused on. And it was heartbreaking. The instruction was remedial. Um, There were no materials, all sorts of things. So that happened. That was seven years ago. And the graduation rate was, I think, maybe 75, 78, something like that. And I said, oh, that's pretty interesting. But then I realized that there was really no proficiency. You know, I come from a state where you have to pass five regents exams to get a diploma. And um, that didn't exist. So then I I was confused. Why only in the 70s if you don't have a a proficiency exam? Like, it it was very confusing, the whole thing. Um, Then two years ago, the mayor asked me to come and speak... um, Dominican Heritage Month. Mayor Alorza here in Providence? Or? No, nope. no. Um, the mayor, bef- Tavares. Mayor Tavares, yes. Tavares yep. asked me to come speak. Um, and a report had just come out talking about Latinos being dead last in Providence, in the, in the nation. And I remember saying that to the community, feeling very disappointed, outraged. And all of a sudden, there was like silence in the room. Like, they, they didn't understand why I was outraged. And I couldn't understand why they weren't outraged. You know, I, you know, as an immigrant, we're fighters, right? Like, we come to this country and want a better education, want everything to be better. So it's than what we had back home. So it was very confusing to me. So when this opportunity, when I did get the call to consider this job, I felt like it was more, it it was destiny, right? I had these two experiences where I remember feeling ill afterwards. So when I decided to take the job, I called the Council of Great City Schools and I said, have you guys been back since I came with you? And they said, yes, recently. Do you have the report? Can I see it? They said, no, it's not finished, but pull down the one that you helped write seven years ago. It's exactly the same. Right. So this notion out there that you were walloped by the news that Providence schools and other schools in the state were having problems after you took the job that you're having buyer's remorse that's been floated around anecdotally, that's utter nonsense. It is nonsense. I I did know. What I did not realize is how bad it was. I knew it was bad. I knew that there were things that we had to work on. I, you know, I want to take a challenge. I don't want to sit in a job that I don't have the opportunity to make meaningful change, but I just did not know how broken the system was. I didn't realize to what level. So looking back to before you, you came to Rhode Island, perhaps the discussions had happened already in, in two, that November 2018, the RICAS exam results mm-hmm. hit. And I, re- I had Senator Sheldon Whitehouse in here, and we, we were kind of going back and forth on low results in Central Falls. Mm-hmm. And then he had relayed some anecdotal 
um, experiences going to Central Falls into some of the computer labs and some of the other specialty rooms I was describing, refereeing those kids, and what a mm-hmm. positive experience, what a great, yeah. as you said, kids are kids. Right. So then it's a question of, all right, does, the test, is that how you know, we really need to measure a student you know, and their ability? But then fast forward to the Johns Hopkins report, that's something you can't dispute. That's just no. plain and simple no question about it, major issues. So really, you you came in and moved the lever that much further into a discussion that can't just be two months after the fact kind of swept under the rug, the way in a lot of ways the RICAS was. Right. So the RICAS also, um, then I found out that there was a report done in 1999 that almost mirrors the Johns Hopkins report and nothing happened. So I think that the report has allowed us to unpack things very publicly in a way that has created a little bit of urgency and outrage. Personally, I I have to tell you, when you read that report, you almost feel like you're in a third world country. And um, I know what that's like. And some of these things wouldn't even happen there. I was just going to say, I I don't, there's, there's, plenty of examples where it's in you know there's not a there's not fecal matter on classrooms you know or in classrooms in third world countries you know that's right so that's right so it's it's very disappointing um the families have felt shut out there's also this um level of fear that if you speak up there's going to be some retaliation from everyone from the administrators from the teachers from the parents i'm not sure where that culture came from but I hear it from everyone. I actually visited a school this morning where a teacher said that um, her child's elementary school teacher put a book in a brown bag and gave it to her and said, you know, um, use it when you finish, bring it back, but don't let anyone know that I gave you that. Well, what is that? I, I don't even understand that. Yeah, it's wild. It is wild. Like, not understanding what has happened here but I, what I do know is that we have the opportunity and the possibility to change it now. Right and that starts with the state well it begins with other things but the state intervention the takeover however you want to frame it is really the the key ingredient and I've been wondering aloud at times if there were a group text message three o'clock in the morning and you're on mm-hmm. it the mayor's on it the superintendent or interim superintendent's on it chairman of the school board maybe the council president um, maybe Mary Beth Calabro, the the uh, the uh, union president in Providence, mm-hmm. who's and there's a major discussion about mm-hmm. something that has to be decided. Will you be the ultimate voice in such a scenario where there's a there's people at the table, perhaps now because of the motion filed by the Center for Justice, um, Jennifer Wood, on behalf of Prism and Providence Union, perhaps they have a voice as well. But are you the ultimate voice here? Um. Legally, yes. Mm-hmm. However, I think um, my style has always been, and my record shows that, of working very collaboratively. Mm-hmm. Because at the end of the day, the state can't be here forever. That's not, uh, you know, that's not a long-term solution. So we want to build it from the ground up so the community owns what is created. But we have to take some swift action. And I you know, I was saying it in the forums and nobody really, um, they laughed when I said everybody wants change until it comes. Because change is painful, right? And it stretches us. And we can't do the same things we did before, right? We can't have the status quo. And um, there were too many hands in the pot. Everybody thought that they knew what, the, what was best. Everyone um, 
had special interests. I have never been in a community where there's so many special interests. Yeah, then Rhode Island, oh Brit- Providence. Gosh. Oh, for co- of course. And everybody has an agenda. <laughs> and um, I, my agenda has to be the kids, you know. Yeah. And if you're not part of that agenda, then um, I really am not interested in any sort of partnership. Yeah. I think that's the only way to do it at this point. I mean, it's been tried every other collaborative manner or in, mm-hmm. in terms of working with those special interests. There really is, there's no other, there's no room left to, to drop at this point. There's no room for margin of error at all, I suppose. Um, so, you know, I know that I saw a tweet that you had, Steve Clampkin at WPRO tweeted out that you went into a classroom on the first day of school and saw someone playing bingo or a teacher mm-hmm. going through bingo. I mean, and that just... Yeah, I get that. You know, I had a Spanish teacher in when, where I went to school that didn't speak Spanish. You know what I mean? So <laughs> that's one minor version of just, just th- those sort of nonsense days where you're just time-filling. Mm-hmm. Um, is there anything worse than just time-filling nonsensic- nonsensically at this point? Well, the problem is that um, some of these schools are at single-level proficiency. Yeah. Right. And when you're talking about single level and that same day and the week before I had been to schools that were opening on the first day, you know, there's obviously get to know you activities. There's um, what do you want to do? And in that same school, I saw teachers teaching. Yeah. I saw teachers um, trying to build community. I just don't know how shouting out B11 <laughs> and 30 yeah. and the kids using Skittles is, you know, that's great. We're not there, right? We need to up the ante. That's, you know, that's fine. But it's the first day. We're setting the stage for what it will look like for the rest of the year. And I'm sure that, um, you know, that's no judgment on the teacher or anyone else. But that says to me that we haven't reached the place where we understand how far behind we are. Exactly, right? The urgency is not there. I mean, it's hard to imagine how it couldn't be, but apparently... It's not if there's still some of that happening. Yeah, and it it is the first day because people say, well, it is the first day. I was like, yeah, it is the first day. Exactly. We only have 180 days to get this right. And um, we're already starting way behind. So let's let's figure out where we're going. And this is middle school. So let's say if we're a first grade class and you're saying B11, maybe you want to go over numbers, letters, or whatever. Um, this was a history class. You could have done bingo and history, right? You could have done um, some facts. I went into another school that same morning where they were taking history facts and matching them with the words, like what's the constitution? Here's the definition. They were putting them together, working in teams. There's so many other things, and I think defending that, um, to me, is shocking and not at the same time, right? Because this is where we are. Right? right, our expectations are low at this point. Um, I'm expecting that we're hitting the ground running, and we have to. We don't have the luxury. I keep getting asked, "Well, what happens to kids that are in 12th grade this year? That the diploma doesn't, you know, what, what are they going to do? We don't have the luxury to not hit the ground running. I cannot express that enough." 100% agree. Um, last question on Providence, then we'll zoom out to the state for statewide for the last few minutes. Uh, you were kind of getting badgered on Twitter by some small businesses saying, oh, I'll throw in some services to help fix the schools. And I thought that was really ugly. I thought that was people looking for free marketing and so on and so forth. But I'm sure 
underneath the surface, there have been real players stepping up. Mm-hmm. Have you found the private sector leaders in Rhode Island outside of the principals, the stakeholders at the table for, for education in Providence? Have you found there to be kind of a legitimate um, base of support from, from Rhode Island as a whole? Yes, I will say that the private sector has responded um, and we're putting together what they can actually do because we're not going to paint a wall or do this. We're going to do, uh, we're going to have a concerted effort. So it has a real meaningful impact because um, when I first came, everybody was like, well, who's to blame? Whose head should roll? I was like, everybody's right. We will right. watch this happen. Um, but I think uh, people have stepped up and there will be some public um, ways that people can actually join where it will have deep impact for our schools. Zooming out statewide, so much focus on Providence. That's obviously, as they, they say, as, well, I don't know who they are, but it's said that Providence, as Providence goes, so too does the state. Makes mm-hmm. perfect sense. Right. Um, but there are other districts, not only in urban core areas, but all over that, are, that have challenges that are you know, they're not necessarily going to be forgotten about or overlooked, but they're certainly not going to have the same emphasis. Um, so you can look at districts like Woonsocket, or you can look at specific schools like Pilgrim, or you can go mm-hmm. and even, you know, throughout South County, there's there are certain issues, if you will. Um, so what's kind of the game plan? Are you hoping to create a template in Providence that can be applied statewide if, or something of that nature? Yes. So even though there's been a lot of focus, the report has made the state look at Providence. But I think the most important part is that whatever we learn from Providence, we're going to share statewide. For example, um, we are creating an attendance tool that was piloted last year that will be used statewide. The same thing with an attendance tool for teachers statewide. We are also working on school culture this year. And that means how you're received, how kids feel in their building, but also the quality and the level of their education is part of school culture. If the state of Rhode Island were a district in Massachusetts, we'd be in the lowest 10%. So this is not just Providence. We have to get better. And all the other superintendents, we have been having those conversations. We're going to take the good practices, share them, but we need to up the ante. I went to a school outside of Providence where one of the kids raised her hand and they said, can you ensure that we're taught what's on the test? The test is based on the standards. So the kids understand that they're not getting the quality of an education that they need to get. And this was not a low, um, an urban district. So I think that we have a lot of work to do as a state, and we are going to do that. I am not ignoring the rest of the state. We're moving the needle together. What about alternative programs, using that, that um, category broadly, so vocational programs, Charaho, my alma mater, doing an outstanding job with their vocational programs. And even on the charter side of things, you look at the Green School and some mm-hmm. of the work that goes on there, Met School, Achievement First, whatever it may be. What kind of relationship will, you know, again, not just charter schools, just broad, mm-hmm. broadening education, how much will that play into your kind of game plan here over the next term, whatever it ends up being? It's key, actually, because we have to create different pathways for kids, right? We have to provide different opportunities. There's not one way of doing this, right? So we have to broaden our options for kids and make sure that they have a very strong foundation. But not everyone is going to go down the same path. 
And I think that's something that we have done. Our education system hasn't changed in over 100 years. We have to look at what's really out there. What are the jobs that are out there? What are the opportunities? And also really looking at the kids that we have failed thus far. What what can we do for them? So we're, we're looking at all those options. But right now, we're looking at a portfolio of schools and ways of doing school that will benefit the entire community. Commissioner, thanks so much for your time. I know that you, you know you, you've you've responded to the 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 parents at some at the Providence tour who have said mm-hmm. you're basically our savior here. Um, I feel that way on a on a a certain level as well because I feel like so often we hear criticism of oh the lieutenant governor is going to Southeast Asia for economic development. Well, he doesn't need to go there. Or the mayor's going to South by Southwest, or go- the governor's leaving the state people who build national profiles, it's almost like somehow that's a bad thing here. Mm. People can't stand it when the URI basketball coach leaves for a better school. I think there needs to be a notion that Rhode Island needs to embrace outside ideas, yeah. and particularly those people who have credibility and who have had success, such as yourself, that you know should be brought in in a leadership capacity and, and have that, uh, that loudest voice and most important voice in my, in my mind, because there are so many things here that for the last 80 or maybe even many more years have just not worked. So, Yeah, and I think we have the opportunity to do it, and we're going to do it. Yeah. I, can, I can guarantee you that we're going to do it. I guarantee, I'll say it right now, I guarantee you're going to get a lot done here that's going to make a lasting impact on, on this state. And I don't think there's anything wrong also with the idea that you create a national profile for yourself, people who are resistant to that. That's, you should be embracing the idea. We should want people to look to Rhode Island people who are here developing anything publicly or privately and say, wow, whatever federal level, whatever global level, Mm -hmm. that's what we want to do. So I'm proud that you're here and thanks so much for coming. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And as always, thank you for joining in on the Bartholomew Town podcast. I'll be back on Tuesday with a brand new episode. Remember, there's over a hundred episodes of Bartholomew Town on your preferred podcast app, ripodcast.com or bartholomewtown.com. Until next time, I'm Bill Bartholomew. We'll talk soon.